Hello, I'm Guy Hazelman, the host of MIM Cuts to the Chase. Our guest today is Michael Gunderson, head of agricultural research and strategy at MetLife Investment Management. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. Michael, it's well known that global supply chains were disrupted by the pandemic, and now the Russian war, along with their corresponding sanctions, is certainly magnified issues. Uh, And soaring commodity prices, I think, reflect shortages caused by demand surpassing those disrupted supplies. Could you help us put it all into perspective? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, a lot of people around the globe eat wheat, right? Wheat is a staple food product for over 35% of the world's population, whether you're putting it in pasta or putting it in bread, everybody uh, consumes wheat. And Russia and Ukraine, they are large wheat producers. Together, they account for about 30% of the world's wheat exports. So a lot of countries growing wheat, most of it getting consumed domestically in their borders. But Ukraine has a long history of being Europe's breadbasket. And this is one of the reasons they export a large production of their wheat uh, to Europe, but also to Middle Eastern countries. And so those disruptions, they uh, ripple through those markets. You know, the the U.S. is the fourth largest wheat producer globally um, and exports a good part of its wheat in the Western Hemisphere. But with these disruptions, we could think maybe uh, U.S. exports might uh, fill some of those other countries' needs. Right now, most commodity analysts think that a large crop in Australia is going to be able to meet a lot of those needs. But, you know, if this uh, this incursion persists, then we might see a big shift in global grain markets, not just wheat, but other global grain markets. So, you know, I think the biggest challenge is we were already experiencing some hunger across the globe. About 800 million people prior to the COVID outbreak were going hungry every day. It's gotten a little bit worse. Now with this, it's getting a little bit worse. You know, the UN World Food Program purchased more than half of its wheat from Ukraine last year. And so plenty of headlines out there noting the devastation this is going to have where pockets of uh, poverty and hunger were already occurring. That certainly helps put it in perspective and helps show how important uh, Russia and Ukraine are just in the magnitude of what they're exporting. And it's my understanding fertilizer supplies now may play a part in food production. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, in order to be able to grow a crop, you've got to have good soil, you've got to have some sun, you've got to have some rain. And then modern conventional agriculture requires additional nutrients to be able to achieve the yields we have. And Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of nitrogen fertilizers. They account for 23% of ammonia exports, 14% of urea exports. And so uh, that disruption, the inability for a fertilizer to get out of that country, whether it's because they decide or because the war prevents it, uh, is going to have an impact. Now, in the U.S., we're a little bit isolated from that. Most of North America is pretty fertilizer self-sufficient. We get a lot of our fertilizer inputs from Canada. But countries like Brazil that are really reliant on uh, modern agriculture the same way U.S. producers are, have been uh, importing a large share of their fertilizers from Russia. So that that's going to have an impact on the supply side, right? And I think uh, already global markets were running a little tight on ag commodity stores. And so uh, this spilling over having an impact on yields is just going to exacerbate the problem. We're in pretty good shape in terms of our reliance uh, on certain key 
fertilizers. And I believe even potash, we get a lot of that from Canada. Isn't that right? So I'm an economist, agricultural economist, but the agronomists, they think about N, P, and K. So you've got nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And that potash, that phosphorus, about 83% of that comes from Canada. We've only been importing about 6% of that from Russia. So we, you know, we'll probably see in this spring planting season as our ag producers are heading into the field right now, that they're going to have some challenges getting some access. But I think the supplies are there for now and uh, should result in a pretty standard crop for us. That's good. We're, uh, the U.S. seems pretty well positioned. Who is likely to be the most impacted by some of those fertilizer shortages that we discussed? Well, the fertilizer challenges are going to be most acutely felt in the places that we're sourcing nitrogen from Russia. So uh, China and, and Brazil are going to be places where they were importing a large share of their fertilizer from Russia. So that's going to be a challenge for them. And they're going to be uh, competing for other limited supplies of fertilizer on the global market. So that's going to be a challenge for them. But, you know, I think the bigger story is on the demand side, where many Middle Eastern countries were getting large supplies of wheat from the Ukraine or Russia. And, and you know, the African countries, right, obviously a, a continent of countries imported nearly $7 billion worth of Russian, Ukraine agricultural products last year. And so that's going to be a major disruption to a place where there already is a substantial amount of hunger and poverty. And so the folks at the UN's World Food Program really are doing all that they can to be able to meet those demands, but it's going to be a challenge for them. So we'll be relatively isolated, but places that uh, maybe don't have the same wealth and buying power are going to have a challenge. And it's not just a, a country uh, issue. It's an individual and human issue as everyone is certainly feeling the impact from higher prices of food and energy, particularly low-income individuals or countries when their disposable income, more of it has to go to those basic needs. I'd like to kind of switch directions, if we may, and not just talk about higher prices, but how some of this energy and food issues can have a political and social consequences, you know, when it arises almost at an instability level within a country? Yeah, you know, I think growing up in agricultural economics and growing up in uh, universities talking about why would we subsidize ag production, oftentimes folks pointed to food security, being able to grow our own food as a reason to subsidize ag and make sure that that production always happens within our borders. I think you've seen other countries, China in particular, the, the Communist Party has a goal to be able to produce most of their cal calories inside uh, their borders. And that's just, you know, what we've seen happen on the energy side of these markets, right? The fact that Europe is so dependent on Russian energy has really influenced the way that uh, sanctions are being put on and the way that pressure is being put on uh, Russia to end the to end the war. So the the same story on the on the food side. You know, I think a decade or so ago we had the Arab Spring, and a lot of people pointed towards rising food prices as a reason for that. And I think when people's most fundamental basic needs, something to eat something to wear and, and a warm place to sleep, you know, that's that's where unrest and uh, social unrest really arises from. And so 
again, I grew up as an ag economist in the era of negotiating NAFTA and opening our borders to trade. And the ag sector in the U.S. has definitely benefited from that. And we're definitely generally a pro-free trade sort of country. But, you know, maybe some of the limits of globalization are starting to be realized as countries rethink about how dependent they are on other countries for some of these basic needs. And there might be a return to onshoring some markets. There might be a return to uh, local production of food and energy. And this, uh, this war has really heightened the cons of globalization in terms of what happens when uh, there's some unsavory players that are part of that trade. Yeah, I think it kind of exposed the weaknesses of globalization in that it exposed those vulnerable supply chains on on critical product. And if energy and food security gets thrown in the mix, then countries are making decisions and corporations, not just on who can give me the lowest cost production, but it's actually going to be made more on a geopolitical issue. You know, the UN High Commission of Refugees has called the Ukraine exodus the fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. I think you saw that topping 3 million in just a couple of weeks. And certainly the food shortages or famine that this could lead to, you know, when there are food shortages, cause a tremendous uprooting around the world that can actually have a a knock-on effect. Uh, and cause shortages in other locations. You want to comment on that? That's absolutely correct. And I think we have a humanitarian crisis on our hands. Uh, The U.S. is stepping up to take some refugees. Europe obviously is going to take a a large number of refugees and make sure those people are safe and clothed and and fed. And it's going to be a challenge, but I think the Western countries are stepping up to help in that way. And so, you know, I'm optimistic. It's uh, going to be limited in its duration. What do you think can or or should be done that that isn't being done? I mean, clearly, when it comes to to food, you need food, so you don't you can't really cut demand there. I guess there are ways <laughs> to cut demand in energy, uh, and there are also ways to increase supply. But does anything jump out at you as to what can or should be done at this point? Well, I think a lot of us in agribusiness bought into and and suggested. Uh, that re-manage agricultural and food inventories the same way that lean supply chains manage inventories. And that is to say, we're going to go to just-in-time inventory management. We're going to squeeze out some fat, some costs in the supply chain, and just make them as lean as possible to help keep the cost per unit of calorie or cost per pound of meat or the cost per loaf of bread down as cheap as we can. And I think both COVID and this um, this war have highlighted the risks of focusing singularly on cost per unit and have ignored maybe the benefits of having some extra stocks and extra stores that uh, by definition are going to add to the cost, but are going to uh, limit the variability. So, you know, on our corn price side, we've seen commodity prices of corn be double or triple what they normally are because of us. Uh, Uh, perhaps managing inventories a little too tight. So I think that's one thing is we're going to have to rethink the just-in-time inventory. But I think another thing is reconsidering how trade occurs and how that happens. I think, you know, we saw in the U.S. the negative impacts to our producers of 
a trade war with China. And that was really a challenge. Uh, the, the Chinese were buying a lot of ag commodities. Their growing middle class was uh, demanding more animal proteins, and we were supplying some of that. And then we had a trade war, and we see what impact that has. And I think we're going to have to pay attention to how uh, our relationships with other countries uh, play out and uh, what impact they have on our uh, food and ag commodities. Yeah, there are certainly some short-term and tactical things that are going to need to be done in the immediate term, and then some of those longer run changes from globalization or the way we assess trade will take a lot longer to play out. With that in mind, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? You know, I think um, in the long run, countries are really going to have to evaluate policies that uh, limit food production or limit uh, energy production. You know, I think our own United States Department of Agriculture, our own USDA has really led the charge on helping the global community, the global ag community, understand the benefits of modern technology, modern agriculture, uh, improvements in yields, and what that means to reducing global hunger. And I think, you know, a lot of countries are stepping up and uh, with the U.S. to say, let's let's use technology, let's use science to really uh, improve the human condition, reduce hunger around the globe. And so I'm optimistic that uh, in the long run, we've got some tools to avoid some of the hunger that we've seen in my lifetime. So let's all hope that that uh, comes to fruition. Absolutely. Hope's a good thing. And I think that's great advice. And, uh, and so on that note, I think it's a good place to stop. Thank you, Michael, very much today for, for sharing those, uh, those thoughts. Thanks for having me, Guy. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. It is not MetLife Investment Management's intention to provide, and you may not rely on this podcast as providing, a recommendation with respect to any particular investment strategy or investment. The information and opinions presented or contained in this podcast are provided as of the date it was published.